0: Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behaviour, sleep, and more. Ella Ward was 36 years old with a young daughter and a husband when she found out she had a rare cancer. It was potentially terminal. And with that in mind, Ella started a book of letters for her daughter, something she would be able to leave behind if she died. Fortunately, Ella not only published the book, but she's still here to talk to us about it. Hi, Ella. Welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Hello, Shev. It's lovely to be here. So I have to start by letting you know that I was crying with the first line (laughs) in your book. And just, I think it needs to come with a warning. So those that are listening, this is the first line. You're holding this book because I can no longer hold you. All right, I'm going to cry again. That is <laughs> insane to start a book that way. So it was so hard for me to read that.
1: How hard was it for you to write it? Oh, it was brutal. I, I have to say um, the The book is currently sitting at a one hundred percent cry rate, so (laughs) I've not I've not met anyone yet, and not many people um, have read it up to now because it's it's only just come out. But uh, I have not yet met anyone who hasn't cried, which I get a uh, quietly sadistic pleasure out of. (laughs) But I can tell you that I wrote that uh, without crying that letter, Mm. and that's because. I think there were a lot of times in in pulling these, these letters and this book together in which I had to do a little bit of disassociation. And the reason that I was able to do that is I actually didn't end up writing the majority of the letters until a good two years after the world exploded, well, my world exploded.
0: And, I mean, we should also mention that this is actually a very joyful and vibrant book. Um, (laughs) It is. There's happy tears. There's happy tears. There's laughter. There's a lot of things going on in this. And the key to that is possibly, A, the ability for you to write it sort of post that huge traumatic experience Mm. of being diagnosed with cancer, Mm. Um, but also the fact that it's not just personal letters from you to your daughter, it's words, actually written words from your own family all the way back to your great grandfather. And I just could not believe you had so many written words from these important people in your family's history.
1: Well, you say you can't believe, but anyone who's met my family is not remotely surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think I put this in the book, but... I come from a family who believed we were important enough to write it all down. And the the, the important word in that sentence is we believed. <laughs> it's not <laughs> that we were. But um, yes, we, we are certainly not a family who's backwards in coming forwards when it comes to telling our own stories, which is luckily for me the, the meant that I had a huge wealth of just words and rememberings and lessons to draw from.
0: I still think it's so special because it's one thing to believe you're important. It's another thing to be able to actually articulate what's going on around you. It reminds me, uh, my father is a prolific photographer of our family's life. And so as I grew up, it was something he always did. So when I had my kids, I've been really, really careful about documenting every year the photo books because that's what my dad did for me and understanding that those images form my memory of my own childhood in a way. Yes. And so this goes another level. Like you're seeing into the minds of your ancestors. It's, mm. It seems incredible to me.
1: I'm very lucky in the fact that I have a great-grandfather who in 1918 was so passionately in love And also, if you read some of the other letters, I have to say, probably so horny (laughs) that he just could not help himself, but to write these letters to his fiance as he was fighting in World War One in France and Belgium, and she was back in the States. So that was wonderful. But I think that what was most compelling for me is that my grandmother, who ended up sort of being the center chapter through all these other legs and arms that sort of spread out from, from around that, she kept those letters and she kept her father's memoir, and she wrote her own. And, and in doing that, she then created a, a, a daughter, my mother, who also wanted to write her story. So by the time I sort of found myself sitting in the middle of lockdown Melbourne in 2020, I thought, holy cow, I've got all this stuff. And I'm also considering writing those letters that I promised I would write not, not so long ago. So why don't I just mush them all together and create, I, I call it a time-travelling memoir. I mean, cancer can be
0: a very long experience. You mentioned there that it was sort of two years after your initial diagnosis that you kind of sat down and, and was looking were looking into these letters. But mm. that doesn't seem like a long time post-diagnosis. And also witnessing other people go through the experience it it seems, it seems long in terms of its uncertainty, um, oh. the treatments, the recovery. I think sometimes we hear the word cancer and we think it's, you know, a bomb goes off and then it's all dark and it either works out well or it doesn't. But we don't see, we don't see the uncertainty of different appointments. We don't see the radiation or the chemo. We don't see the long and very bumpy process that can be that journey. Even though you were looking at those letters two years afterwards, what was that period like in the lead up to that when you were even thinking of writing to your daughter?
1: Yeah. it it's, very, it's a very astute observation. I think that no matter what cancer you have and how your treatment plays out, there is always a moment at which a lot of people sort of dust their hands and go right that's done mm. see you later and and you're sort of left sitting in a quiet room holding the remnants of the person you used to be to the cancer that I had was a very sexily called anal cancer <laughs> which is basically a skin cancer it's a squamous cell carcinoma so you can get them on your leg or your arm or anywhere and I happened to get mine my, my bum because i like to do things differently <laughs> and one of the unfortunate things about squamous cell carcinoma is up your bum is that it's difficult to diagnose but if you do get diagnosed before stage four which which i did i was stage three when i was when i was diagnosed the treatment is relatively swift it's very brutal mm. it's sort of like basically just blowing everything up and hoping that there's a human standing there and the In the remnants, Mm. but I really only had six weeks of treatment. That was it. It was done. Yeah. And so two years post that felt like a lifetime and it also felt very brief. I think to answer your question, because we were in lockdown, time was so muddled and elastic and slow and fast and we were all upside down anyway that I think I was almost in this sort of big, bubble of just of just nothingness where days and weeks didn't really mean anything and it was the right time for me to sit down and, and start to pull these letters together for my daughter and of course there was a big part of me that was thinking and still does actually that if I do die early whether it's when my cancers come back or another cancer happens or I get eaten by a rhinoceros <laughs> there is a Very, very strong glow of relief and sadness and happiness that I have put all of this down for my child.
0: So your daughter was born in 2012, which makes her the same age as my daughter. And if I know anything about nine-slash-ten-year-olds is that they have a capacity to read certain words and understand certain things and of course she would have been six when you were diagnosed. Yes. Yeah. How was she through your illness?
1: She was amazing. Um, I am eternally grateful that she was that age when I was sick because she was old enough to be, we could, we could manage her and I use that term sort of broadly, but, you know, she could go and stay at friends' houses happily. She could be picked up by other people from school. You know, she wasn't a a newborn or a clingy toddler, but she also wasn't old enough to really know what was going on. She is a precocious only child. She is hyper-aware, particularly now as a nine, nearly 10-year-old. And I dread to think how much more challenging that process of diagnosis and treatment and recovery would have been if she was the person she is today, which is someone who is curious, bordering on um, nosy. <laughs> so when she was a little preppy, it was very easy to create a reality that I was happy with her living in, which was mum's sick, she's going to be fine, but she's going to be pretty tired for the next few months and that's everything's going to be okay. And that was great. What is very challenging now is, as you say, kids at that age can read words and understand concepts, maybe not process them in an adult way, but they can certainly engage with them. And there's a bloody book lying around (laughs) that literally says 27 (laughs) letters to my daughter. And, oh, my God, like my mother-in-law was here from England in January and I gave her the manuscript. It hadn't been published yet. So I gave her this big tome of papers bound together and I said, off you go, go read that. And she's English. And have a has a stiff upper lip, and the poor woman—you could see her just reading page after page, thinking, "Holy cow, this thing's actually going out into the world." <laughs> and she was very, uh, she was very generous with her feedback and her support in allowing me to tell her son's story as well, because I, I talk about my husband Tom in the book a lot. But the first question she said was, "What? What are you going to do when, you know, she wants to read it?" And I just looked at her and I said, "I don't know." <laughs> I hadn't thought about that until the bloody book was published, (laughs) haven't
0: I? (laughs) But isn't that incredible? Um, What a great turn of events that that is your concern as opposed to that achingly devastating first line, you know, like amazing that you can at some point hand her the book. Maybe do it when she's a teenager and she's giving you lots of shit and just say, look, this is what I have. (laughs) I don't, I don't need to teach you anything. I wrote a book for you. Go yeah. and read it.
1: Please refer to lesson 912.
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, did you feel when you were writing that and pulling out the lessons from the different letters that you used, did you feel like you were learning those lessons yourself?
1: I mean, what did
0: you get out of that process?
1: I'm a huge advocate for therapy. Because I believe that the human brain is such a muddled marsh of, of nonsense that every now and again, it actually spits out what you're thinking before you've had a chance to consider what you were thinking. So that's the wonderful thing about therapy or spending time with someone that you love and trust is that you end up talking. And as you talk, you actually form an idea with your voice that you didn't really know that you were thinking. And it was exactly the same in in writing the the letters. I never planned to write lessons through the letters. I knew there were going to be 27 letters. I knew the things I wanted to cover off. And as I started to write them, I thought, oh, probably it's the advertising woman in me. I was like, I need something piffier. I need something (laughs) sharper and shorter and catchier. And so I started to write these lessons. And the lessons are literally one sentence, maybe three words. I think one of the lessons is give a shit. (laughs) Um, But some of the other lessons are a lot less um, pithy, like always wear cotton knickers. (laughs) But I definitely found that sometimes I would just shoot off a lesson and I think because they were so short, I didn't have to think about them so much. I just sort of typed them down. And as I wrote them down, I thought, oh, yeah, that's actually, I do believe that and I do want to impart that lesson onto someone else. One of the lessons, which is one of my favourites, which I wrote very quickly and wasn't until I was reading back, I thought, actually, that basically sums up the first half of my 20s. But it was, do your stupid things with kind people.
0: Oh, that's brilliant.
1: And, and that basically sums up you know, a lot of people's twenties, I think. But I was lucky enough to do a lot of really dumb things with a lot of really kind people, and so I didn't really carry any scars from from those activities um, later on. And and that's something I wouldn't have really thought about. It wasn't until I just sort of shot it out my fingertips, and I thought, yeah, that's true. Let's put let's back that a lesson.
0: <laughs> so you mentioned there that you knew that you wanted to do twenty seven letters. Was that because you'd already looked at all the letters and you knew which ones you wanted to use or is there another reason behind the 27?
1: You know, I wish there was. (laughs) I wish there was a really cool reason behind the 27, but there's not. It's like I wrote a list, I started at the top, and by the time I got to the end I thought, oh, that's 27. And actually I will let you in on a secret – I did not think that that was going to be the title. I just wrote 27 (laughs) letters to my daughter at the top of the paper and I shipped it off to the lovely people at HarperCollins and when it came back uh, with a thumbs up on it, I said, great, and now when can we start talking about the title? And my wonderful editor and publisher said to me, what do you mean? The title's done. I was like, oh, there's a lesson. (laughs) Don't put a title on a piece of paper unless you're willing to see it in print.
0: Unless you're going to stick with it. (laughs) Now, I must admit, reading this, I was very kind of jealous of your family and the humor and wit that that is prevalent throughout the book. But the other thing that struck me was that some people might not have a clear understanding of their own family history, possibly because there are a few skeletons in the closet and, and maybe skeletons that nobody wants them to bring out. Was that ever a factor when you were doing the research?
1: Yes, I do have a family that you know wears its hearts and marriages and divorces and breakdowns on various sleeves but um, there are certainly stories that aren't mine to tell. Mm. I again was lucky enough to have my grandmother still alive she's 94 she's nearly 95. And she's in a nursing home outside of Melbourne. And she and I were in constant contact through writing the book. And I wasn't so much asking her permission to publish things because they'd already been sort of self-published in her own letters and memoirs. But it was of great comfort to me to be able to just softly reference things to her and see if that was okay. And then more close to home, my parents divorced many, many years ago, have remarried, have subsequently divorced and then repartnered. You know, there's a lot of fractured relationship in in my family and I had to make sure in the book that I made it very clear that I was writing the story that I could tell because I was involved in it but there are stories that are not my stories to tell and therefore I have not put them in the book.
0: Did you get to the end of it and feel more strongly connected to those people that whose letters you took, your great-grandfather, your grandmother, your mum? Did you feel that invisible connection, you can see it in the book. You even start with that showing how there sort of
1: echoes through the generations. Mm. Absolutely. I'm not a um, hugely spiritual person but there were a number of moments at which I literally had to put the piece of paper down and just take a bit of a breath because uh, the, the amount of overlappings and and coincidences and wonderful threads of different stories with 150 years in between. One of my favourite moments was quite late on in in the book. I, I basically already finished it. I was still in communication with my American arm of the family, um, and this is actually my grandfather, my grandmother's older brother. He's 96 and he's still alive. He's rattling around in his house in in California, and I was emailing him and saying do you have anything else of your mother? Because I've got all these words from my great-grandfather, but I don't really have much from from Kay. And he said, oh, let me see what I can do. Anyway, bless him, he ruffled through his garage. He found five typewritten letters from 1970-something. He scanned them in and he sent them to me. And I was almost breathless with anticipation when I pulled this email up because I felt like Kay had sort of stepped into the room after everyone else had said their piece and she was sort of clearing her throat and saying, okay, now it's time for me to speak. (laughs) And in this very um, matter-of-fact, almost perfunctory statement of her life, which she doesn't really use flourishes or embellishments or, you know, much emotional language at all, it's all very matter-of-fact and statements, there is this sentence where she says, my father was very ill for most of my childhood and I used to wish on the first star of every night for him to be well. And I nearly fell off my chair because I had written an entire chapter about the fact that growing up and well into my 20s and 30s I would wish on the first star of every night for my family to be happy and well and then eventually I would wish for a baby because I couldn't have children at the time. And to have that sentence in writing in front of me, I was just floored. And I say I'm not a spiritual person, but that was the moment at which I thought there's some sort of strange magic afoot.
0: It's so interesting because I think we we live in a time where that kind of history and that kind of past isn't necessarily part of how we live you know there are cultures around the world that venerate their elders, that venerate their family history and it doesn't seem something that we really have in the modern age and that seems to me what's really special about this book is almost reminding people that we have connections in the past and they can make some sense of the present or even just to give it more meaning. Mm.
1: I totally agree and I think as well... (sighs) You know, we're pretty simple creatures. It's very hard for us to identify with someone unless we feel that there's some sort of connection or similarity between us and that other person. So it's no coincidence that apps that take old photos and animate them so those heads are turning and smiling and the eyes are looking down the camera at you are so popular because suddenly they're breathing life into something that feels staid and old and dusty. And I think that's one of the reasons why the letters from my four generations above me that I've pulled in feel so sparkly. And it's because they contain sex and love and drama and violence and and fear and, and all sorts of things that people experience all through their lives. And and, and so to sort of bring that into relief and, and to really see the the energy that your elders once had allows you to see that energy that maybe they still do have
0: it's such a special book ella thank you so much for speaking with us today you are so
1: welcome thank you
0: that's ella ward she's the author of 27 letters to my daughter and you'll find links in the notes of this episode to where you can find the book